All right, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we don't have a space for Kids Point this week, so children in kindergarten through fourth grade, uh, you get to stay here with us this week. And next week, too. I think it's our natural tendency to assume that the, that the kind of world we've grown up in is the, is the way it's always been, right? So for those of us who grew up in the 1980s, it's, it's kind of still surprising now that, that we're not poised for nuclear war with Russia. Now, I guess things could change. But that, that hasn't been the world that those of you who are in your 20s and your teens that you've grown up with. You didn't know a world like that. So maybe it feels a little jarring now. I mean, can you imagine how, how your experience in the world has led you to think that the way things are now is the way things have always been? So I know my kids, I'm sure it's true of all you kids, you have a hard time imagining a world without indoor plumbing. I mean, unless you've seen that world on TV or movies, like you've watched Little House on the Prairie, okay, then you have some concept of a world without indoor plumbing. If you've grown up in the last 20, 25 years, you can't imagine without a, a world without remote controls for fans, remote controls to, to start your car, remote controls for TVs. That's like passe. That's been around a long time. We even have remote controls for our robot vacuum cleaners today. And some of you are growing up and you won't be able to imagine a world without that. But I want to drive that question home a little bit to us as Christians in the 21st century in America. So what are the things that we, as 21st century American Christians, many of us granted born in the 20th century, what are the things that we have been led to assume about life for Christians? What are the things that, because they've always been our experience, we assume that they've always been the experience of all Christians everywhere? Things like religious freedom, which so many of our brothers and sisters across the ages, across the world right now, have not experienced. We might assume that it's normal for Christians to be accepted in our society, even respected in our society. Maybe we're beginning to learn that's no longer the case. We've grown to assume that Christians can, can expect prosperity, Prosperity at a level similar to what the, the rest of the world experiences. Or if not, you know, prosperity, at least, at least comfort. Being able to walk into a grocery store and buy all the things in a grocery store that non-Christian society can buy. Because we have the same means that they do. But what happens, what happens when we wake up in the 21st century and find that we are less accepted in our society? when society feels more hostile to us than it used to, if, if, as I'm sure some of you will face, if you have not already, that your career's trajectory is limited, it hits a ceiling because of your convictions, what happens then when the world feels less comfortable to us, less accepting of us? We might assume, because this is what we are, we've always had, we might assume that we're losing something that Christians have always possessed, something we deserve, something we might say we are entitled to, their rights. And we might get angry, mightn't we? We might get angry at the world, 
We might get angry at other Christians who aren't fighting as hard against it, and we might get angry, ultimately, at our God, who has not provided for us what we feel we're entitled to. We might grow discouraged. We might even feel tempted to to lose our faith. Now, i got to tell you, brothers and sisters, I think based on Scripture, when we think we're losing something that Christians always had, something that it's our right to expect, we show our ignorance. I mean, we show our ignorance of, of, of history, of the Christian experience throughout history. We show our experience of the world as it is today, or maybe not our ignorance, but just our disinterested, the, the plight of Christians in the rest of the world. And we surely show our ignorance of Scripture, even of the words of Jesus. So today, as we are in the latter passages of the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is in his last days before his arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus is in the temple. This is where he has been throughout this last week of his, of his life prior to crucifixion. He's teaching daily in the temple. That's what chapter 19, verse 47 told us. So then at the beginning of, of chapter 20, where we were last week, this is where Jerusalem's leaders, they're in the temple, they try to ensnare Jesus in his words. This is where Jesus sees that poor widow put in the two small coins, virtually worthless, but who worshipped the Lord by giving her her all, everything that she had. Now, near the temple, Jesus prepares his people for a difficult future, and he teaches them about the temple. Jesus teaches his people that things will not always be as they are now. Jesus' people must not assume that things will always be as they are now. The, the first temple that Jesus, uh, the first temple that existed before Christ, the first temple stood for 400 years. Drew alluded to it before the Babylonians destroyed it. The temple that's standing when Jesus speaks the words in, in Luke chapter 21 that we'll see today, that temple has been standing then for, by that point by, for 500 years. But even that temple today is no more. When Jesus spoke, the temple had been expanded recently within the previous decades, expanded and renovated by, by King Herod the Great, might have even uh, rivaled Solomon's ancient temple, that first temple that was destroyed in its majesty, but Jesus really seems uninterested in this temple. Let me show you what I mean as we pick up today in Luke chapter 21, verse 5. Again, they're they're near the temple, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, this is Jesus who said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Well, why do you think Jesus pivots from their awe at the temple to to its awful end in years to come? Well, I suspect that Jesus makes a subtle point. He doesn't unpack it. I can't prove it. But I think Jesus is saying that this temple, this temple that you see that you're so interested in, so awed by, this temple is not ultimate. That temple would not last for all its history, for all its glory, That temple was just a shadow, a shadow pointing to a greater reality, like all shadows do. Shadows aren't the thing, but they point to the thing. The temple was not the ultimate reality, but it pointed to a greater temple. That temple was a a temporary place for sacrifices 
until a greater priest offers a greater sacrifice. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. How Jesus, the last priest, offers himself as the last sacrifice for sins. And that last sacrifice, at that, after that last sacrifice, the king builds a new temple. A temple not made with hands. A temple made of flesh, of living stones, Peter says. And so then the stone temple, the ancient stone temple, becomes obsolete, no longer needed. Its mission was accomplished. It pointed toward the, the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice and the perfect king. And the day of that king's death is now near. But Jesus' listeners, they ask some reasonable questions, okay? Jesus has said this temple will be torn down. They want to know about this. So look at verse 7. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Jesus answers then, in the verses to come, I'll read them in a moment, he, he answers them in three stages, okay? And this, if you, you can use this for the outline of your sermon, all right? The, verse 8, Jesus answers by pointing them to, to signs, actually to things that are not signs, signs that things are normal, okay? Events they might think are signs, uh, but are not signs of the destruction of the temple. That's in, beginning in verse 9. Then in verse 20, Jesus points them to actual signs of the temple's destruction. When you see this, that's a sign it's coming. And then in verse 25, Jesus goes beyond their question and points them to signs of an even greater event. And here's the main idea that I want to stick with you today. Brothers and sisters, you don't live in the first century when Jesus spoke, but this point reaches us as well. Remain vigilant without fear as Christ's return draws closer. Remain vigilant without fear as Christ's return approaches. So let's consider first the signs that things are normal. I'm going to read the, probably the longest section I'll read at one time today. I'll pick up there in verse 8 and read down through verse 19. They've asked the question, when will these things happen? What are the signs? And Jesus says, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Friends, we need to know for life in this age, what are not signs? Jesus says, this is what his people should expect. 
These things are not signs of the destruction of the temple. They're not signs of the end. Okay? This is, in other words, what they were supposed to expect. And because these things were not signs of the end, I think this applies to us as well. This is what we should expect in life in this age. This is normal life for followers of Jesus. Jesus says, expect false messiahs, right? People, even centuries later, people like David Koresh, don't be led astray by them. Don't be led astray by people who promise you victory, power, safety, and security. I mean, you might ask, though, how do I know the difference between the, the real Jesus and the fake Jesuses, okay? False Christ, what do I know? How do I know the real Jesus when he comes? Well, go read sometime 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, which describes Jesus coming and his, and his followers are caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air, okay? So if you encounter someone who's claiming to be the Messiah, ask yourself, Am I presently being caught up in the air to meet the Lord? Okay? And if you are, then it's Jesus. If you're not, it's not Jesus. It's a liar. Turn off the TV. Okay? Put the book down and burn it. Don't give it to anybody else. But then Jesus also says, this might hit home a little more, they should expect wars and conflicts, revolutions, Later he says, terrors. All right, got to get used to this. This is routine life in a sin-cursed world, in a world that's filled with people who are depraved. i got to say, I, I walked in this morning. I don't know if I'm pointing the right direction. I walked in this morning, and I saw just the, the chaos of these political signs. It was worse when you got here. Somebody cleaned stuff up. Signs strewn here and there, trash. And you know what I thought? I thought, I thought nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be chaos and conflict everywhere. Now, listen, listen, I know. I know some of those people. I'm not sure I can tell you who all they are. There's some of those people whose names are on the signs who want to go to Austin or county government, city government, want to go to Washington and do good things. I'm, I'm sure there are some. But there are a bunch, you've seen it happen again and again, who just want to build their own kingdoms. And they want to carry on the conflict to expand their kingdoms. Brothers and sisters, that kind of chaos is what we ought to expect. Shouldn't be deluded by it. Shouldn't be discouraged by it. Nothing has changed when kingdom rises against kingdom. It's not even a sign of the end. Jesus also says they should expect what we might think of as uncommon cataclysmic events. Right there in, in verse 11, great earthquakes. This is the norm. Famines, pestilences, some might say pandemics. These are the things we should expect from life in a sin-cursed world. Everybody's talking about the, the sign in the heaven that's coming soon, the, the total eclipse that's going to cut through our area in just a couple months. I haven't heard anybody uh, refer to it yet as the sign of the end times, but listen, just wait. You're going to hear it sooner or later, somewhere, aren't you? You know this. You've seen it before. But there's one more non-sign. One more thing that is not a sign of the end. We read this in verses 12 through 18. We read about persecution. That is not a sign of the end. Jesus tells his disciples, you should expect this to be your future. The fact that for a few centuries, 
many Christians in the United States and in other pockets of the world have been able to escape direct persecution, threats against their lives for the most part, does not mean that that is the norm, does not mean that it will always be the case. In fact, this is the story that Acts, the book of Acts tells. Peter and John, very soon after uh, the ascension of Christ, they're arrested. In Acts 12, Stephen is murdered. Sorry, it's in Acts 12 that, that King Herod kills the apostle James. Jesus said, some of you, and by Acts 12, James has lost his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you can read it sometime, documents all of Paul's persecutions and sufferings, his beatings, even his stonings. The end of Acts tells a story, like the last seven or eight chapters of Acts, tells the story of, of Paul going from, to Jeru from Jerusalem to Rome. A and not on a journey that he controls, he's under arrest. He goes to Jerusalem expecting to be arrested there, expecting to be persecuted. His life is narrowly saved as, as the Jewish, Jewish leaders plot against him. So the Romans arrest him. Paul appeals to Caesar, and the Romans take him where he wants to go. They take him to Rome. He has a winding route facing uh, numerous different leaders. But Paul goes and preaches the gospel everywhere, and he makes the Romans pay for it. All bear witness. Stephen and Peter and John and Paul... Along the way, they all bear witness, just as Jesus said there in verse 13. This will be your opportunity to witness. Persecution, arrest, imprisonment, even death, in God's eyes, is for us not a loss. It is a way that He intends for us to accomplish the mission He's given us. You understand this, right? Jesus did not send us here. He doesn't keep us here with the mission of making ourselves prosperous and comfortable. Our mission is to herald the message that the king has died for the sins of humanity and he is coming again to rule this world. And our mission is to make disciples, people who follow Jesus, people who will escape judgment through the blood of Christ, even if it costs our blood. People who want Jesus' disciples dead, they may ignore they may ignore the, the disciples' gospel. They may reject the disciples' gospel. But look there at verse 15. I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. They may ignore it or reject it, but they will never contradict it. Just as Jesus answers all of these religious leaders who attack him, they never have anything to say. Preach the gospel that Jesus is king and no one will ever be able to contradict, contradict it successfully. In fact, they'll lose their minds trying. Don't miss verse 17, though. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus told his disciples to expect that everyone would hate them. This ought to help us, too, in a world that's less friendly, perhaps. Remember, these aren't signs. These things are the standard. They're normal life. They are the condition of the world that we should expect to apply to us too. And this is where the danger of living in a, in a, in a wealthy society, in a stable society, is, is we start to think that we have a right to share in its wealth, in its ease, in its comfort. We get used to it. We start thinking that we have something in this world, in this society, something that, that's worth hanging on to, something that we can hang on to. But understand when we start thinking that, 
we're ignoring Jesus. I've noticed a feature in today's American evangelicalism. We think we can make society like us. We think if, we, if we're nice enough to people, if we, if we treat people who rebel against Jesus with respect, if we treat society's wicked ideologies like they, like they have some merit, like there's some truth embedded there, we think that we might even make people like Jesus. There's just one problem with that strategy. Jesus says it's a fool's errand. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Those are Jesus' words. Now, listen, hear me well. Christians can be jerks. We can be self-righteous. I know, I'm sorry, Ron. I didn't mean for you to find out this way. Christians can be jerks. We can be self-righteous. We can be arrogant. We can speak truth in an arrogant, abrasive way. Or we can speak our opinions that are not truth as if they are absolute truth. Brothers and sisters, do not do that. We should be appropriately humble on the things that, that the Word of God hasn't revealed to us. But when God has spoken truth, make no compromise. In fact, if, if the world does not oppose you or I, that might actually be a sign that we're doing something wrong. That we're not fulfilling our mission. That we are not declaring against people who would be kings that Jesus is king and that he reigns over all. Understand, brothers and sisters, we have nothing to lose, even in the face of persecution, in the face of imprisonment, and in the face of death. Look again at verse 18. Not a hair of your head will perish. How can that be? Jesus says, some of you are going to die, he says to his, to his disciples. And it's true. How can that be that not a, head of our, our, a hair of our head will perish? Well, maybe Jesus exaggerates for effect. Maybe he's using hyperbole as a figure of speech here. Maybe, or maybe, Jesus is thinking about the resurrection. Maybe. Because death is temporary. Our hairs will be raised along with the rest of us. Maybe we'll even get some back. Maybe. But 1 Corinthians 15 is clear about this. Maybe you remember a year or so ago when we were concluding 1 Corinthians where it teaches, 1 Corinthians 15 teaches, that our resurrection bodies are attached to, they are, they are who we are now. Oh, but so much greater. Like, like the seed that you plant in the ground is the same organism as the majestic tree that springs from it. Oh, but that tree is better than a seed. You and I right now, we're the seed. But the tree is ready to be revealed in the resurrection. So no, not a hair of our head will perish. I don't think we're going to be getting, uh, we, we will not be a million years from now looking back and thinking about the suffering we endured on this earth as if we lost something, as if Jesus cheated us out. No, we will rejoice in that we finished our mission and that Jesus will have said, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, this is not a risk-reward scenario where you have to weigh one against the other. No, there is zero risk and all reward for faithfulness to Jesus. And how do we survive? How do we ensure that not, that not a head perishes? Verse 19 tells us, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus is saying here that, that saving faith, genuine faith, trust in God that saves us, it perseveres. It endures. It persists. 
Our, our church's statement of faith puts it this way, that real believers endure to the end. In fact, God makes sure that it happens. Back to the words of our statement of faith, a special providence watches over our welfare, and we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. In other words, brothers and sisters, endurance is not some radical action. It's not pressure on you to go change the world, to set it right, to win, win it for Christ. No, endurance is desperate faith. Endurance is clinging to Jesus. It says, Jesus, you are my only hope. I will not let go of you. And because my grip is weak, I have no other hope than that you cling to me. And you will not let me go. And friends, this is good news. This is good news no matter what the next century may hold for us. Because becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus and then you're on your own. Becoming a Christian does not mean that you had faith, you repented, you, you showed that faith and repentance perhaps through baptism, and now you're on your own. Go, go do it on your own. No, it begins a life of faith, a life of ongoing dependence upon Jesus. Enduring dependence upon Jesus, who is our power. Dependence upon the Holy Spirit, who enables us to cling to Christ. A life of depending upon Jesus, not, not ourselves. So my friend, start resting. Resting your hopes upon Christ now. Okay, maybe you've been butting your head against the wall for years. Maybe you've been fighting sin in your life for years. Maybe you've been trying to make a way for your, yourself in this world for years and you're wondering why it's not working out. It is because you're depending upon yourself. Turn from that self-dependence and rest in Christ who died for you and rose to life for you and now reigns to secure for you a place at the table of God for eternity. So, we should conclude this section. Brothers and sisters, these are not signs of God's judgment, not signs of the destruction of Jerusalem or of the end times. These things are signs that the world is normal, that it's continuing in its normal, cursed, broken state. So don't be led astray. A false messiah might even be someone who says to you, you have the power to fight back. Offers some strategy to, to win the culture without that, that is apart from the gospel. On the other hand, don't be terrified. Don't be terrified, verse 9, by the things you see around you. Verse 12, expect persecution. And verse 13, resolve now that you will bear witness as God gives you words to speak. Knowing, verse 18, that even if you lose your life, you lose nothing in eternity. But then Jesus gives his disciples at least part of what they wanted. He gives them signs that the temple's destruction is near. They asked him, what, what will be the signs that this temple will be destroyed like you just said, Jesus? He gives them signs here in uh, beginning in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Okay, little rabbit trail here. It's going to be a little thick. Stick with me. I think it'll be helpful. You may be familiar with other passages like Matthew 24, Mark 13, where Jesus is, is delivering the, the same sermon. They're recording the same event here. The, the New Testament contains how many Gospels, kids? Put your fingers up. How many Gospels in the New Testament? 
uh, it is four. I've got some variants of opinion. Four Gospels. Can you name them? Kids, shout out a Gospel to me. One of the names of the Gospels. Mark, just keep going, keep going. Matthew, Luke, and John. Boom, you got it. Well done, kids. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke often record the same episodes, the same scenes in Jesus' life. John does sometimes too, but John is, 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 is more recording separate stories and teachings of Christ. Okay, so those three are very similar. In many places, they are word for word in English and in Greek the same. But each of them, each one of those three Gospels, often leaves out some things that the others include. And each includes content that the others don't. Each of those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're writing to different audiences. And while their general purpose is the same, sometimes they have different points of emphasis along the way. So while they are not identical, they are compatible. They fit together. They tell the same story truthfully. And this is one of those places, verse 20, where Luke is different from Matthew and Mark. Okay? So Matthew and Mark say that the sign isn't when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. They say that it is the abomination of desolations. Okay? Luke uses less dramatic language. Okay? Now, I, I know there are different opinions on this. I think the, the best explanation is that when Jesus prophesies about Rome destroying Jerusalem and specifically the temple, when Jesus prophesies about that, he's prophesying about A.D. 70, when, when the temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed by, by the Romans under Titus. And Jesus is foreshadowing future events. Matthew and Mark tell the story in such a way that he's both talking about the destruction of the temple and talking about a, a far distant future time of judgment. But Luke keeps it more simple. Matthew and Mark are compatible with Luke, but Luke narrows it. Luke focuses more narrowly on this closer event, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. Okay, in other words, the disciples ask, what's the sign that the temple's about to be destroyed? Luke's answer is Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem, which is related to the abomination of desolations. And Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem, this is exactly what the Romans do in the years leading up to AD 70. They build a stone wall really quickly, a stone wall encircling Jerusalem to keep anyone in Jerusalem from escaping. In fact, let's look at, uh, hang on just a second on that. This is exactly what they do. And, and, and Jesus has a message for the people in Jerusalem as to what they should do when they see that sign, Roman soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. Look with me at verse 21. Then, when you see it surrounded, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance, judgment on Jerusalem to fulfill all that is written, fulfill what's written in places like Psalm 79. So what should the people do when they see the signs? Flee, get out of the city. There's no hope for anyone who remains in the city. And this is exactly what one group of people does in AD 70. Christians. There's a historian named Eusebius who's writing a couple centuries later, probably around 300 AD. He reports that many Christians survived by fleeing into the mountains and beyond even to the, to the city of Pella. Escaped the capture of the Romans. He even reports that they were warned by an oracle. I wonder if this might be what they had in their minds. 
But not everyone flees the city. Not everyone hears the words of Jesus, and Jesus predicts their fate. Look with me at verse 23. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. If you've studied this story in ancient history, you will know stories that are too graphic for me to go into detail with here before you today. This is exactly what happens. The Romans capture those who wait too long to escape Jerusalem. They crucify those who attempt to escape too late on the the roads outside the city. Another historian, one you may have heard of more, Josephus, he reports that when the Romans take the city, they capture nearly 97,000 people and kill over a million. Even if that's an exaggeration, and most historians think it, it probably is an exaggeration, the Holocaust, yes, the Holocaust that took place, is staggering. And from that time forward, Jerusalem is trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Everything happens just as Jesus says it was. You approach the, the ancient site of the temple today, and what do you find? You find a mosque the Dome of the Rock. To prevent violence, people who practice Judaism are forbidden from worshiping on the ancient Temple Mount. The closest place they can even pray is off the grounds, near the Western Wall, which is the, the, surviving, the surviving support structure for the ancient temple. Not the temple itself, but the kind of the retaining wall that held the slope in place. Well, how does this all matter? All right, you may be thinking, all right, this is fine, but I'm not worried about signs of the temple being destroyed because there is no temple and I don't live in Jerusalem, right? How does this matter that since there's no temple today? Simple. It really is simple. Jesus knew all this, didn't he? Jesus told them what was coming. He prophesied and it happened just as he said down to the letter. This ought to be confirmation for us today that we need to listen to Jesus. We need to trust that what Jesus says about our present and about our future is reliable. He will not let us down. He will not let us be cheated out of the promises he has made. But there's one last set of signs. And these are signs of the Son's return. Signs that the Son of Man, the Son of God, is returning. Look with me at verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. These signs are more than an army prepared to deconstruct a temple. These signs represent a decreation of the universe. This is the end of the age. What will these signs look like? I could speculate. I won't. It's clearly an escalation from the wars, the terrors, the conflicts, the revolutions, the earthquakes, even signs in the heavens that we read about earlier when Jesus said, these things are not signs. This is the tearing apart of the universe. And I suspect that we will know it when we see it, okay? The nations see it, but they don't understand. They're perplexed. They are afraid, and they should be. 
Why? Because look at verse 27. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now some interpreters are convinced this is also about the Roman defeat of Jerusalem at AD 70. Their argument hinges on verse 32, which we'll get to in a few minutes. But here's why I, I, I think we should not believe that this is about some coming of the Son of Man nearly 2,000 years ago, a, a, a coming in judgment, but rather a coming in redemption. Here's why. Verse 28, Jesus' return here points us towards redemption. Okay, it's hard to see that in AD 70. That's a coming in judgment. It's coming uh, to bring vengeance upon Jerusalem. Secondly, I've got four, four reasons we should think of this as, as the future return of Christ. Secondly, Luke writes, same guy, Luke writes in Acts 1, 1, 9, that Jesus ascends to heaven in a cloud. His disciples see it, and while they're looking, two men, uh, I think they're angels, they say that they appear and they say that Jesus will come down in the same way that he ascended in a cloud as he comes down here. Okay, That means that people will be able to see Jesus coming in this time that Jesus is talking about. Third, in verse 35, we haven't read it there yet, but this is something that comes upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, not just Jerusalem. And finally, if, if Jesus came in this sense in A.D. 70, well, that means we're not waiting on the second coming of Christ, we're waiting on the, the third coming of Christ. But listen to Hebrews 9.28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, His crucifixion will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. The kind of redemption that Jesus is talking about here in verse 28. And so brothers and sisters, what does Jesus say there in verse 28? When you see these signs happening, straighten up, raise your heads, look to the heavens, because your redemption is drawing near. I think he's telling us, I don't think he means you need to wait I think it's right to look to the heavens now, long for this return, long for this return of Christ that ends suffering, that ends sin, that finally, once and for all, sets us free from the power of the flesh that drags us down. It begins for us the life that God has intended for you from the beginning. It is the beginning of your forever lived exactly as God designed it in the Garden of Eden. I had to go to Genesis 1 sometime in this sermon, right? The only action that you need to take when you see the signs is to look up with joy and rejoice because your redemption is coming. Okay, I understand that's some heavy stuff. Jesus helps us breathe for a moment with, a, with an illustration. Look with me at verse 29. You see this illustration here. He told them a parable. Look at the fig trees and all the trees. As soon as they are come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things, these signs taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, you can trust Jesus' words. And the point of this parable is pretty simple, I think. The agricultural signs, the signs of trees and leaves, they, they parallel the signs of, of the end, the signs of the end times. So verse 31 nails down the point. So also when you see these things, these signs taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near, just like you know that when leaves appear, 
you know summer is near. It won't be long. <laughs> I mean, you're seeing that right now. Some trees starting to pop out some leaves, and you know, here we go again. Six months of summer. It's near, nearer than we'd like. The sticky point is verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Okay, this is a major reason that some interpreters think all these things happen back in AD 70. This generation will not pass until all these things happen. Sounds as if it all happens in a lifetime or less, like from 30 AD-ish when Jesus is talking, until 70 AD, 40 years. That's, you know, that's within a, a normal lifetime. It would have been easy to assume that the people hearing Jesus talk, that some of them, many of them, would have still been alive 40 years later, okay? So from 30 AD to when Jesus speaks in AD 70 makes sense, but not from 30 AD to AD 2024, okay? None of the people who were alive then are alive now. So I changed my view on this this past week. I used to think that when Jesus says this generation will not pass, he was talking about this kind of people, these wicked, adulterous people, these Pharisees who are opposed to Jesus. I thought it meant you'll always find people in this world who are opposed to Jesus, just like the Pharisees. It's a strong view, but I, I came to the conviction this past week in studying. It's, it's not, I don't think it's right. But I was digging in the Word and getting help from some commentators. It clicked. Look at verse 32. It's embedded in this parable, right? The parable begins with leaves on the trees. The leaves represent the signs, and from the leaves to the summer is a short time, Okay. In other words, the parallel is that from the signs, when the signs start to appear to Jesus coming, that too will be just a short time. Once the signs appear, things happen quickly. A generation won't pass between the beginning of the signs and the, the, the fruition of the coming of the Son of Man. It, it, it says, in, it, in no more than a generation, perhaps much less. Between the time when the signs appear and the coming of Christ... Perhaps much less time is what you have to be ready. And so, brothers and sisters, I would ask you, are you ready? My friend, as you've perhaps wrestled with Scripture, questioned what you should do with Jesus for a long time, are you ready? You may not have as much time as you think. And Jesus concludes his teaching, as pastors often do, with a pastoral application. Okay, when you see the signs, what should you do? Well, the truth is, when you see the signs, there's almost nothing that you're told to do. So he says, look up. But in fact, there's still application for what you and I should do now. Since these things are true, what should we do now? Look with me at verses 34 and 35. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Look, this is what normal Christian life ought to look like. This is what Paul and Peter and James and others of the apostles write about in the rest of the New Testament. That we need to watch ourselves and stay awake and pray. Watch yourselves now. Whether or not you see the signs, 
Why? Because it's easy to be distracted. Because the cares of this life absorb, absorb us. Because drunkenness makes us drowsy. It wastes our life. It dulls our senses. It dulls our hearts and weighs us down. And friends, in these days, alcohol isn't the only drug that dulls our senses. Contrast that with verse 28. Okay, Look back in verse 28. Jesus says, look up. Your redemption is drawing near. Be alert. Be ready for it. Drunken drowsiness distracts us. It might help us to escape from the cares of this world, escape from our fears, help us cope. But it also distracts us from our redemption. It distracts us from our from the gospel. It causes uh, it weighs us down. Uh, it weighs us down. Jesus says here. Jesus says, "No, don't be weighed down. Look up. Your redemption is from up, not from this earth. It comes like a trap. There's no escape. And it comes upon the whole earth. There are no exceptions. So watch yourselves." In verse thirty-six, stay awake. Stay awake as you pray. That won't be easy, will it? I mean, prayer is actually my best weapon against insomnia. When I can't sleep, prayer is the the thing that works. But we pray here, Jesus says, pray because we know we do not have the strength to escape these things. I don't have the strength. You don't have the strength. I don't know who said it first. Many people have. But if I could lose my salvation, I would. But the Lord Jesus holds on to me. Prayer says, if I'm going to face Jesus and stand on that day, it will be because of Him. And because by His grace, I depend wholly upon Him. Not because I have fixed my anchor and I have stood fast on my own. Now, faith says, prayer says, I need Jesus. But then what does Jesus do after prophesying about these end times? Prophesying about His coming. Look at verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus goes right back to teaching. Extraordinary days are coming. Until then he keeps teaching. Keeps opening his Bible, the the Old Testament. And people keep listening. Brothers and sisters, Watch for the signs, but keep listening to the Word. Keep looking toward the end. Keep looking to Christ. And you find what you need to know about Christ in His Word. Friends, know whatever signs we may face, whatever delusions may arise, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. So watch yourselves. Don't drug yourself to dull your senses, to waste your life. Pray for strength. Pray for strength to stand, to remain vigilant without fear as Christ's return draws closer. Vigilant in your life and vigilant in the words of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would understand this world correctly and that when your signs appear that you would give it to us to interpret them, not be perplexed. But Father, help us whatever age we may live in, whether you would come today or in the distant future. We pray that we would watch ourselves, that we would remain vigilant. 
we pray that we would keep awake. Keep awake as we pray for strength from you to stand at the last day. And we pray knowing that you will be faithful, knowing that you will preserve us and that you will give us eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.